Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 49. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about reclaiming culture through archaeology. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Honey Constant on the show. Honey is Plains Cree from Sturgeon Lake First Nation. She is an intergenerational residential school survivor and is currently obtaining her master's in archaeology with the University of Saskatchewan. She is also the senior interpretive guide at Wenaskawin Heritage Park. Honey focuses on Plains and Indigenous archaeology with her perspective as a Nihiao Iskaweo. She shares her journey reconnecting to her language and self-expression with beadwork over on Instagram at Honey Willow Creations. So welcome to the show, honey. Hi, thank you for having me. Kinaskumtin Jessica. Honey constant sagasun nehiwan. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Yeah, excited to talk to you. So we we did some chatting before we got on air and figured out that it is almost as cold in southwest Colorado as it is in Saskatchewan today. We're at I think it was oh, yeah. 32 and 28 Fahrenheit or zero and negative two Celsius. So we had some fun figuring that all out before we got on. <laughs> so and and snowing in both, right? Yep. Watching the snow now. Yep. Light nice and fluffy. Yeah, yeah. It's well, we're in that awkward melty because it snowed a lot past couple of days, and then today we've had a little bit, but it's in that melty icy goodness period <laughs> right after the snowstorm so but no sun to melt it all again love it which is odd here yeah yeah <laughs> but anyways how did you how did you get into this field and and what got you interested in this kind of work yeah i this is honestly one of my favorite stories to tell i remember when i was younger my mom's actually a high school teacher so my mom always thought i was going to be a teacher but that somehow ended up being my role anyway And usually when I'm telling stories, I tell stories in the most convoluted way that makes no sense at all, which is perfect for a podcast, I guess. (laughs) But basically, when I was younger, I loved learning about my culture. I loved reconnecting. I loved watching a lot of documentaries. So a lot of the history was already there and I really wanted to know more. So when I was 16 years old, my high school actually did this thing where you would have to job shadow a certain job that you may or may not want in the future. And it was mostly an excuse for my classmates and I to be like, oh yeah, I want to work at this job. And then say that you did there, you went there and you didn't actually go. 
which it seems like a really bad thing, but everyone needs to remember that at this time, I live in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. It's not really a city per se, but it is a city. So there wasn't really much options, I guess you can say. So my mom being the the big dreamer that she is, she was like, why don't you go visit your uncle in Ottawa? So he at the time had a wonderful job, an office job at a specific place that will be unnamed. And it seemed like a really good option for me. And I was like, okay, maybe this is something that I might do in the future. So of course, I had a cousin who was in the same grade as me and she had the exact same assignment. So when she found out that I was going to Ottawa and she loves traveling, she bought a plane ticket and we both went to Ottawa together. We spent about a week there. We only needed to do one actual day of shadowing this job. And we interviewed his coworkers and found out more what they do and services they offer to Indigenous peoples. And then the rest of the time, we just got to explore the city on our own. And I was 16. I went to a museum. And I remember being so excited and just loved every moment of it. And then you get to the main floor where this museum is focusing on the Indigenous peoples of Canada. And needless to say, my cousin and I just kind of like looked at each other, walked through real fast and didn't bother looking around because it felt very lifeless, very dull. It didn't reflect the culture that we knew. It didn't reflect the people and the stories and the laughter and the teasing each other that we knew. So in that moment, I remember walking back to my uncle's house and thinking to myself, like, man, I want to work there. I want to make it better. I want to properly tell the stories of the people in their own way because The rest of that museum was so beautiful, so interactive. You had lots of fun learning. Like, I remember thinking to myself, wow, they made post stamps fun, (laughs) but not the culture of the people. So then, yeah, I researched and I realized that to be a curator at this museum, you need to either have your master's in a related field. So something that I picked was archaeology. So the next year when I started university, I declared my major in the first month as archaeology. And here I am ever since. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about, so you, you declare your major as archaeology, right? And can you tell us a little bit about when you were at college, what it was like learning about archaeology, especially as an Indigenous person, and if there were any particular experiences that, that really stood out to you? This is such a great question. So... I think something that even as I'm doing my master's right now, something that I think a lot of us tend to gloss over is the fact that undergrads are supposed to be a four-year degree. Obviously, that is mostly not the case for most people. I did my undergrad in six years. I took a break year and then life happened and I missed a class and all of that shebang. But in my undergrad specifically, I remember the first two years being kind of like, okay, this is okay. You know, you have to get through the the very, very basics of where the human evolution, you have to get through all of that. And then of course you have to take some classes. But even when I talk to other undergrads who are in their first and second year and they're like, man, I don't think this is my right choice. I don't think I should be here. All of these things that we've all probably thought at different parts in our journey. I have to be honest. I don't think, even though... Even though I was gung-ho when I was 17 and I picked archaeology, I had a little moment of like, 
okay, is this really what I want to do? Is this really the right path for me? Because first year and second year classes are just so generic. You don't really get to do too much until I took my third year Plains Archaeology class. And it was with Dr. Walker, who is now my master's supervisor. And I think that was my first time I've ever had an undergrad class where I was really challenged to explore a certain topic. And it was really nice because then we explored things like bison jumps. We explored things like bison pounds. We explored all of the wonderful ways that people of the Northern Plains, well, all of the Great Plains actually, procured bison and how clever they were. And I can talk about bison procurement for hours, but what really made me think like, wow, this is definitely the the choice for me. The moment that it all kind of came together was writing my term paper. They would always be like, yep, you can write anything related to the class in 20 pages or less. And of course it had to be properly written, properly referenced. And I had this like boastful moment of like, oh yes, I'm indigenous. I'm going to solve the great mystery of medicine wheels. And uh, yeah, I was humbled very quickly. (laughs) I discovered that there's barely any oral histories that I could find about medicine wheels and all that. So that was kind of like my first moment of, wow, this is actually something that I really am passionate about and I'm really interested about. And then that's when I realized that, you know, maybe Egyptology or the Middle Eastern archaeology is not for me, but Plains archaeology is definitely. And then, of course, at this time, when I moved to Saskatoon, to the bigger city, away from my family, I realized that a lot of the things that I wanted to do and a lot of the things that I was interested in had to do with my culture. So for another class on the Boreal Forest Archaeology, again, same thing, write a term paper related to anything in the class. And I wrote about traditional plants and their uses of the Boreal Forest. And in a way, I wrote this paper because at the time I was struggling and I needed to find something to start putting my spirit and my my energy into. So then that's actually how I, in a way, sparked my spiritual reconnection, if that makes sense. So I remember reading to you about a field school that you did and how that tied in a little bit with with another part of of your journey. A lot of it, sorry. Could you <laughs> could you talk a little bit about that that field school experience during undergrad? For sure. So to properly talk about my field school experience, I need to back up all the way to grade one. And what I mean by that is I believe everything is connected. Every situation that we've been through has an, an action or a chain reaction that started it. So what I mean by that is when I was in grade one, I was in French immersion and I was one of two Indigenous students. And I didn't really understand what it meant at the time to be Indigenous other than the fact that I was darker than everyone. <laughs> and I remember we went out to Wanuskewin for a field trip. I walked down to a theater and I remember seeing on the stage a traditional powwow dancer in bright golden yellow regalia and he was dancing and he was a male fancy dancer. So he had fringes everywhere and they danced really fast. And I just remember being this 
young child thinking, wow, this is me. This is my culture. Fast forward, having that experience when I was 16, 17. And then finally, when I was 18 or 19 at this point, I did my first field school in 2017 at Tawana And Dr. Walker started the school off with a two-hour walk through the entire valley. And he wanted us to really understand the importance of the site, both from the archaeological perspective, but then from the spiritual perspective, because we are honoring the Northern Plains Indigenous peoples. And that being said, when I excavated, it really changed a lot of my life. Not because of like, wow, this is more hands-on work. Like, I loved it. But I think what really changed my life was the fact that every day from May and June, Monday through Friday, from literally nine till about two o'clock in the afternoon when we were digging, there was always school children around. So then each day there was one person in charge of talking with the students. And when it was my turn, I just felt my spirit come alive because I really wanted them to see what was happening, to feel what was happening, and to know the importance of why we're doing what we're doing and we're not just digging in the ground. That's kind of where my master's was born out of. So essentially, that's that's what I'm doing now and into the future, as long as I can see. Yeah. So we are going to take a quick break here for a minute, but then when we come back, we're going to continue on and, and hear about your master's thesis, which you provided that great segue to. So we will be back here in a moment. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right. And we are back. So you uh, left us there with that nice segue of how this all ties into your, your master's thesis the field school, that is. So could you tell us a little bit about that transition? Yeah, totally. So my master's thesis 
is focusing on plains archaeology, of course, specifically around the Pimahal Valley, which is the valley where Wanaskewin or Wanaskewin, if you say it properly in Cree, is situated. And what makes Wanaskewin unique is we actually have a total of 19 pre-contact sites, including two known bison jumps, a bison pound, campsites, kill sites, and the most northerly known medicine wheel in the plains. And, of course, over 6,000 years of human occupation and evidence of every northern plains indigenous group possible. So what makes Wanuskewin beautiful now is it's always been a gathering place for people. And as some people may know, we're actually on the tentative list for the UNESCO World Heritage Site. So part of trying to be world class, we are actually trying to bolster our center of excellence. And what that means is We've increased our exhibits. And of course, since we've seen archaeologically every type of indigenous group in the Northern Plains present in the Opimahel Valley at one point or time, the exhibits reflect these languages. And what I mean by that is if you come to Wanuskewin, you walk through the building, you'll see Cree language first and then English on the bottom. You'll see Nitsitsapi, which is Blackfoot, and then the English. You see the Anishinaabe, which is Soto or Ojibwe, and then the English. You'll see the Dene. You'll see Michif, which is the language of the Métis. You'll see Nakota. You'll see Dakota. Oh, man, there's seven different language groups that we acknowledge at the park. And it's, it's really wonderful. When you walk into our building, you're greeted by the voices of our elders, first in the language and then in English. So when I think about what my master's is doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing is it's for honoring those languages. It's honoring that knowledge system. It's honoring us as indigenous peoples. And it's kind of hard to sum up, (laughs) you know, if I'm being honest, but yeah, my master's thesis is talking about the archeological record, all of that history that has helped bring these languages to the forefront that has helped bring these cultural traditions and these peoples to the forefront, especially in Saskatoon area. And we've started this work in the the early 80s. So being 2020 now, we are constantly moving forward. So my master's thesis is focusing on telling those stories as an authentic Indigenous person, putting those narratives equal to the science. And how I'm going to be doing that is specifically aiming at grade fours and grade eights. So my research question should be focusing on how can archaeology, how can archaeology that is influenced by indigenous knowledge and practice impact reconciliation education? And that's focusing on the lens in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan, hopefully. So for for those listeners that are are not Canadians, reconciliation is is something a little bit more specific in Canada. And I know we talked about this on the the episode with with Dr. Supernant. But could you could you briefly just explain for for our non-Canadian friends what you mean when you say reconciliation? Totally. I think each one of us might have a different definition or different bias, if we were being honest. For me, When I think of reconciliation, I specifically think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who did a huge inquiry into the Indian residential school system in Canada. And part of 
the reconciliation, the part of needing to reconcile was the fact that for so long, Indigenous peoples have been marginalized and then held at a lower status for honestly everything. I'm not going to go into the whole politicalness of it, but um, the need for reconciliation education is just righting wrongs, telling the proper story, changing stereotypes, rearranging the narrative to properly honor the Indigenous peoples. Here in Saskatchewan alone, our core curriculum has now started to incorporate cultural perspectives. And what that means is, if you're learning about, specifically for the upper levels, so grades six and onwards, you need to learn about the formation of Saskatchewan. And not just from the settler perspective, you also have to think about it from the First Nations perspective. And one of the learning outcomes, one of the things that they absolutely need to learn about in schools is how did the First Nations people contribute to Saskatchewan? And Saskatoon wouldn't be where it is today without Chief Whitecap, which is pretty amazing, actually. (laughs) Well, and one thing that you and I were talking about before the episode aired, which, I mean, so what you just said there about how Indigenous people helped shape Saskatoon and Saskatchewan. One thing specific to that that we were talking about was their place names. I mean, Saskatoon and Saskatchewan themselves as, as words. Can you can you talk about some place names in, in Canada? Of course. So the biggest one is Canada, or if you say it properly, is Canada which I believe translates to village. And then Saskatchewan itself, the name of my province, is translated from Cree into English, and it translates to swift flowing rivers, because we have two rivers that flow very swiftly. And then, of course, Saskatoon is a berry, much like a, similar to a blueberry, and it's actually very good. If you come out to Saskatoon, there's Saskatoon-flavored everything, and I'm not mad about it. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, everything has a name. Everything is named after an indigenous language. Even Manitoba. Manitoba is taken from Manitou Abbey, which I believe is an Anishinaabe word for creator or where the creator sits. So, and you'd even said before the, before we started recording that it's Saskatoon is actually like a little bit of a mispronunciation. Is that correct? Of the Cree? Yeah, all of it is a little bit just like Wanaskewin. It's anglicized. And Mm -hmm. my grandpa likes to laugh at me because I have a French accent because of elementary school. So when I speak Cree, it sounds a little funny. (laughs) But to say Saskatoon Berry in Cree, Misaskawatumina, it's it's so bad. But I'm trying. But it's like Misaskawatumina. Yeah, it's so bad. My Cree accent. I'm trying. I'm getting there. It'll get there. (laughs) Yes, I believe in you. Yeah. So, okay. Let's see. Going back to your master's thesis and you were talking about how archaeology can contribute to reconciliation. How does that tie into your work as a senior interpretive guide at Wenaskawin? Of course. That's the whole thing. Since I was in my undergrad and even now and even further, I've been using archaeology as a way of reclaiming that story and reclaiming 
the the microphone in a way to tell the story properly from our voices, from our perspective. So when I do tours, I specifically do tours for schools first and then public and for anyone else that listens. And we talk about everything from the way that the different plants are used, from the way that the valley has formed over time, from how people use the bison jump to hunt. Again, I mentioned I can talk about bison jumps for days until the cows come home, until the bison come home. Uh, (laughs) But basically, one time I was talking about the bison jump, talking about how it's a communal hunt. People came together. You would have to herd a bison over the hills and how you like use their behavior against them. And you knew what reactions were. And this one time I had a huge group, again, pre-COVID time. I had a group of about 30 people, 30 public. And this one man, non-Indigenous, stopped me right in the middle of my like passionate speech. And he was like, stop, hold on. Isn't this really savage? And I can tell you the first thing that I did was just laugh. It was shocking. But that's not the first time that I've gotten something like that. So I've gotten so used to situations like this. So I turned to the man in front of everyone since he decided to do this to me. Mm-hmm. And in a lighthearted way, I'm, I'm Cree. I like to make jokes. I like to tease you. So in front of everyone, I asked him, do you have McDonald's 500 years ago? And he awkwardly said, like, <laughs> well, no. And then I'm like, okay, 2,000 years ago, do you have Costco and those cheap hot dogs? And then he goes like, no. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay. So then 5,000 years ago, do you have Home Depot? And then he was like, at that point, kind of got my drift. So I picked up my, my spiel from there. And I said, hunting bison wasn't just for sport. We didn't choose to go out and hunt hundreds of bison in one communal hunt for fun. You did this once a year and there was ceremony at many different parts. And if you come to the park, if you come out to Wanaskawin, you'll see statues or sculptures that have been created to tell the story. And the one that sits inside is a shaman, is named by the, the sculptor, our medicine man, a holy person. And he's standing on a platform near the edge of the hill And what he's doing is he's holding a bison skull and he is telling the bison, giving thanks to the bison, praying for those bison because their family, their kin, their wogotuin, which is a Cree word for our family, all my relations, everyone and everything is connected. And even if it did seem in his words, savage, he jumped to the conclusion that I was just going to end the story there. If he listened to the whole story before cutting off my my spirit and my voice, he would have heard the true story instead of what we usually see in the movies. So when I think about how my job impacts reconciliation, I'm telling the story from our perspective, from our knowledge, and again, that is authentic to our people and to our belief systems. Yeah, and I guess my question that I want to ask off of that is how would you explain to somebody, you know, who doesn't have have the background in this type of work, why representation is so important with this kind of content? The reason I advocate so much for Indigenous people to be at the table, 
for Black, Indigenous, people of color to be at the table, especially if it has to do with their own heritage, is they know best. If we, okay, let's think about it this way. You are the older sibling. The older sibling have to deal with everything from doing all the chores and doing all of this, doing all of that. And then finally, you as the younger sibling comes in and erases all of the history, all of the chores, all of the artwork that you ever done as the older sibling and said, oh, the older sibling favorite color is red when that's maybe not the case. You as the older sibling will feel so frustrated if your favorite color is purple or something else. All of your artwork is gone. All of the stories that you've told your family is gone. All of you is basically gone. So the point that I make with my analogies, as far-fetched as they may seem, representation matters because if it's not coming from the people that made that history, then how valid is it really? If we are assuming from an outside lens where we don't have that lived experience or living experience, we can't really fully say, yes, these people did this because of this. At that point, we're just speculating and it's very disrespectful to their spirits when they aren't able to be at the table saying, yes, this is something. At the same time, we're also in a way keeping them from their spirits, keeping them from their culture, keeping them from their ancestors. When I think about this, it has a lot to do with spirituality. And it's so, so, so hard for me to try to sum it up, but hope it did some of it justice. Well, I'm certainly sitting here nodding my head. So (laughs) I think you did it justice. And on that note, we're already at the time for our second break. So we will be back here in a second. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, so we're back from our break. And one thing that I wanted to touch on, you you mentioned it in the bio that you sent me 
um, and you've mentioned it earlier in the episode. So I just wanted to ask you about residential schools. You mentioned again in your bio that you're an intergenerational residential school survivor. And so if you could just talk a little bit about what that's meant for you and your story through all of this work. Of course. An intergenerational residential school survivor is someone who has not the lived experience. So I've never physically went to residential school myself, but I'm living with the effects or the aftermath of that and how it's affected myself and generations to come. We're going to feel it for so many more generations. My grandparents both went to residential schools, two different experiences. My cookum, my grandmother, she went to one that was in Prince Albert. Even though she has some fond memories of friends and basketball championships, she doesn't have a lot of good memories of being away from family and not having that family system. And maybe for those people who don't know what residential schools are, which is surprisingly a lot of people, it was a system that John A. McDonald enrolled basically to, to quote him directly, is to kill the Indian in the child, to save basically this this human being from their savage ways, which is a very interesting way of putting it. Of course, we would never do something like this today. But essentially what would happen was they would steal children from their families and put them into these schools, specifically religious schools where they were renamed different names and forced to no longer speak their languages. And among a lot of things, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has a full final report And you can actually go onto their website and look at individual schools. Now, my grandpa, if you noticed already, I don't call my grandpa Musham, which is Cree for grandfather. Instead, I've grown up calling him grandpa. And that's because he went to a residential school that was just notoriously known for being horrible. And of course, it's not my experiences. I'm not going to be telling anything specific, but I can't tell those stories. But basically, he's never told me anything in detail. All I know is that when I was growing up, he pulled my mom aside and said that I would never speak Cree. I would never speak my language. And he wasn't doing that to be malicious. He wasn't doing that to be harmful. Instead, what he was doing was trying to protect me. And growing up, I learned French. And because I have that French accent that sits in my mouth when I speak Cree, it sounds a little funny, hence why he laughs, but it laughs in a good way. Again, we're Cree, we like to tease each other. So what I mean by intergenerational trauma is because of those experiences that they've had and that their their own parents had and that their own own parents have because the first residential school opened in 1885 and it closed in 1996. And that was the school that my grandpa went to. And I was born in 1995, so I could have easily gone to residential school if I was born earlier or if the school systems decided to stay that way. So it's honestly crazy. People think that it's so far in the past, but the last one closed 24 years ago, which is not very long. So some of the things that I feel is, of course, social anxiety. I don't like big crowds, but (laughs) if you ever see me, I'm always in big crowds because again, my job is to be very vocal, very loud, be out there. And that took a long journey. That was a huge journey from being young to being now. And even the elders at the park, whenever I talked to them about something, I needed to be counseled the other 
other month because I was having my own personal things that I felt like my spirit couldn't handle on my own. So I've opened up to other people, specifically my elders. And the elder said, kind of laughed because again, everything's, if you, if you aren't laughing, you're not healing. But he says, I remember when you first came to me, you were so shy. You were a shy little girl. And now look at you, even though you feel scared, you're using your voice. You're standing up for yourself. And in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I would have not maybe have done this. And maybe I would have let this stuff slide. And that's generations of just healing. That's, it's a lot. Seeing my mom go through so much. She had me when she was 20 and I was by her side. I was five when she graduated with her Bachelor of Education. She became a teacher. I remember she was my substitute once and I was so excited. And then I realized she was my teacher, not my mom. And then it it was a whole thing. But I've seen her have bad days, but then I've seen her have really amazing days. And my mom is one of my most biggest inspirations. And then, you know, like everything in life, it's there's bumps and bruises. You learn from them. You heal from them. Each one of us has a spirit. I was gifted a name by my grandpa and it's Pagachostromus. And it's Cree for wild pony because and that should tell you a little bit about what kind of child I was really wild, really loud, very rambunctious. And if you see my beadwork, I'm drawn to a lot of fire colors because, again, that's just what my spirit follows and like connects to is the fire. So a lot of the times I'm very passionate, I'm very loud, I'm very and then sometimes it can turn into anger. So when I think about intergenerational trauma, I think about the fact that I can use that anger, that frustration, that pain, and then turn it into healing. And none of us on this journey, no matter where we are, if you're Indigenous, non-Indigenous, learning about residential schools or looking back on your own past of residential schools, looking at all the pain that people have endured and have come out of, I think the beautiful part is the fact that You can heal from it, you can learn from it, and you can help others. So when I talk about my own experiences, I'm never quiet about the fact that I failed a class. I've never been quiet about the fact that I took six years to finish my undergrad because everything happens for a reason and I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. And the same thing goes for anyone who's struggling or not struggling. Yeah. Okay. So two things that I want to say here. So first of all, for those who are not in Canada... The U.S. equivalent is boarding schools, and the the saying is actually almost exactly the same. It was kill the Indian, save the child, I think, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, like this was not just a uniquely Canadian phenomena. This was here in the U.S. as well, and I'm sure other countries. And the second thing that I want to say here off of this is I was talking to somebody recently, and they were saying how they've like learned a lot from the way I ask questions and kind of have like modeled some of that behavior. And one thing I want to say here is that there's a lot of conversations that go on behind the scenes when we're working on these podcasts. So, you know, just because I'm asking these questions about, you know, traumatic things, doesn't mean that like these questions come out of thin air on the podcast. Like we're having conversations off the air about whether or not these kinds of conversations are okay. And, you know, in this case, for example, like Honey just said, you know, she's she's taking these hard things and, and using it to make things better and wanting to, to talk about it. 
But just know there are a lot of people that, that would not feel comfortable having these conversations. So, so just think about that if you're thinking about having these conversations, that, that the conversations we're having on air here are not, you, you know, they're not happening in a vacuum. There's, there's background stuff that's happening. So just wanted to throw that in as well before we, we move on. So one other thing that we, we talked about with this conversation that we were talking about off air, and I was hoping that you could tie in as well, is you talked about Buffalo at Wenaskawin. So could you continue this story a little bit and, and how the Buffalo tie in, not just, you know, in the archaeological record, but in, in other ways at, at Wenaskawin and in your story? The bison restoration at Wanuskewin is so interconnected with everything we've already talked about. As a Cree person, as an Ahio person, it's so hard to separate certain columns because, again, everything is in a circle. Everything has those invisible lines that connect us, those strings that tell the story. And there were so many strings tied to the bison. And then when there was a huge decimation of bison... When we went from 25 to 30 million down to a thousand and some, a lot of strings were cut. We lost those. So they're keystone species. A lot of that, the grasslands kind of started to disappear, all, all those things. But bringing back the bison is important ecologically. We are trying to make sure that we preserve the species. But our bison restoration is important culturally and spiritually because, again, it's a word that we use, wogotu, in that Cree belief system, that natural law teaching that everyone is related, everything is connected. Those strings, by bringing back the bison, we're slowly reconnecting these strings. And the biggest one was us as Indigenous people, us as people connected to the bison because the bison have a spirit. Everything in creation has a spirit. And by reconnecting the bison to this land, which also has a spirit, it's like healing ourselves, healing themselves. And it's it's a big project. It's talking about the fact that we're just trying to reconnect to ourselves as human beings through the bison, bringing back a family member back to the home. Yeah. So the, the last question that I want to ask is... Like you're talking about a pretty big time depth here with, with everything you've talked to before with the bison and the whole history there. And then, you know, like right now, obviously we're going through a pretty unique moment. This is December of 2020 that we're actually recording this. So we're still in the, the middle of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously that's really been a a pivotal moment in in our at least short-term history and I'm curious from your perspective as an educator and the work that you're doing both with the park and then also working with elders from the different First Nations communities that you're working with how you're navigating that, you know, virtual versus in-person experience and where the the challenges are, where you've been able to, you know, have some creative solutions. How, how have you been able to navigate this moment? Navigating all of that is so, it's a moving target. <laughs> so right now, 
whenever we do need to do any sort of elder engagement, like give them updates of what we're doing. Of course, the main thing is Zoom, but proper protocol, especially here in Saskatoon and specific to my Cree identity is, you know, you, if you're bringing in an elder to visit or to ask for guidance, you offer that tobacco offering in person, you offer it with two hands, you always greet people by shaking their hand and you're very open. But with COVID, a lot of that connection is lost. And I was actually fortunate to work on a project where we actually were meeting with elders quite frequently and we needed to get them on Zoom. And I don't know about you, but myself learning Zoom It was okay. It was not the easiest, but trying to be tech support from a distance for elders is (laughs) fun, but doable. Is it the preferred way that we would gather? No. So when I'm talking, when I want to talk with elders for my master's thesis specifically, I have included a whole COVID plan to make sure that I do it in person. Of course, numbers here in Saskatchewan are rising and I would not ask elders to come and risk themselves by any means right now. So um, I projected for like five months down the way. The thing is, the reason I want to do that and make sure that I'm still in person with them is because I want to honor them too. Just like how I would visit with my cookum, my own grandmother, I would give her tea, give her food, offer her tobacco because it's protocol. It's, it's just how we do things. It's guidelines. It's to make sure that whenever I'm making that tobacco offering to an elder and asking for a specific guidance on this or that, we're entering into an agreement of consent. And when you're making a tobacco offering, there's three parties involved. So there's honor on all sides. There's the person asking, so that'd be me, the person receiving, which is the elder, and then the creator. So that tobacco offering is so, so, so important because that's when I actually give, um, if we're using academic terms, informed consent to my elder of what I'm using their knowledge for. Of course, I need to make sure that I do keep them safe. I'm not going to ask them to come into a busy restaurant. I'm not going to ask them to do this or that. I personally myself will monitor my, my temperature and all of that wear masks, but at the same time, my elder comes first. It's it's really hard. It's hard to navigate. And it's it's changed quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. What about public education at the park? Public engagement at the park is so much different and yet still the same. We're lucky that we have so much land and so much space to gather on. So when we do our public tours, especially outside, we can social distance and we can still talk and gather and tell stories the way that you normally would tell stories. Unfortunately, usually in the winter months, we do a lot of workshops. So this is the time where I would start teaching people how to make mitts and bead and, you know, focus on traditional crafts. That is not an option this year, which makes me incredibly sad because winter months is when we gather and we share stories and we teach each other. But it's... It's honestly very sad, and I think that we're going to try and focus on still doing something, maybe online learning uh, in terms of like online tutorials, but you'll still miss out on all of the tactile engagement processes. I think my favorite part of gathering at the park, especially when we did our 
mitt making workshops, our moccasin making workshops, is the storytelling between people. You'll have 20 people that come into the room, not know each other at all, and then leave knowing each other. It's just that sense of community and it's it's going to be different this year for sure. Yeah. And one thing you specifically mentioned there, you actually had Dr. Supernaut, who's been on our show a couple of times on a, on a Facebook live event with you. So we'll put that in the show notes too. If anybody needs some more Dr. Supernaut in their live, which I always do. So we can, we can add that to the show notes as well. But we, it looks like we're, we're at the end of our time, which always sneaks up. But I really, really appreciate you coming on. And I'm really glad we got the chance to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Any chance that I have to talk about the work that I do, I'll always take it. But if I can leave you with one thing in my language in Cree, we never say goodbye because there's always a chance we'll meet again. And the word that we say instead is wistas, which means see you later. All right. Well, wistas. Hopefully we'll we'll see you again. For sure. We stas. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.